As the snows of winter melted into the green spring of 1676, the strategic situation in New England was complicated. On one hand, the English settlements from Rhode Island to Plymouth to the Connecticut River Valley in Massachusetts had been devastated. Whole towns had been burned out and abandoned in the face of assaults, mostly conducted by Nipmuc warriors, led by their highly capable Sachem Mutomp. Farmers could scarcely work their fields for fear of being cut down by raiders. The Ark of Settlement had effectively been pushed back to within a couple miles of Boston. Yet, despite repeated and significant tactical victories over the English, the native forces were in a pretty precarious position. It's true that the powerful Narragansett had entered the fray, but they'd been badly mauled in the Great Swamp Fight in December of 1675, and even worse from a military standpoint, their food stores had been destroyed. Metacomet, known to the English as King Philip, had built a sizable contingent of followers only to see them routed and slaughtered by the Mohawks, driving him and the remnant of his people back into central Massachusetts and into an unequal partnership with Matomp and the Nipmuc. If it had ever really been King Philip's war, it wasn't that anymore. This spring, the native forces were at least as preoccupied with obtaining sufficient food as they were with carrying on their war with the English. They had to gather foodstuffs, fish, hunt, and above all, plant. Otherwise, regardless of their success in the field, they were going to face starvation. The English were also facing hardship due to the destruction of so many farms and the disruption of trade, but their food supply was not nearly as precarious as that of their enemies, and though they were still taking a beating the settler militias were getting more capable, and they'd begun to see the value of employing praying Indians as scouts and auxiliary fighters. Even a hard-bitten Indian killer like Captain Samuel Mosley was coming around to working with native auxiliaries. By May, the Massachusetts General Council would release the praying, incident, the praying Indians who had been incarcerated on Deer Island. So the strategic picture was devolving down to what one of my favorite history podcasters, Dan Carlin, identifies as the key trait of a militarily successful society, which is the ability to take a punch. Puritan colonial society had been knocked on its ass. The Nipmuc bluntly told the Massachusetts authorities as much as Nathaniel Philbrook recounts in his book, Mayflower. By late March, a large number of Indians had gathered at Wachusett Mountain to the north of modern Worcester. The steep and rocky terrain provided them with protection from the English, yet was far enough east that they could easily attack the towns between them and Boston. On April 5th, the praying Indian Tom Doublet arrived at Wachusett with a letter from colonial officials in Boston. In addition to the possibility of opening peace negotiations, the letter mentioned the release of English prisoners. On April 12th, Doublet returned to Boston with the Indians' response. 
They were in no mood as yet to discuss peace. You know and we know your heart, great sorrowful with crying, for you lost many hundred men and all your houses and your land and women and child and cattle. You, on your backside, stand. They were willing, however, to discuss the possibility of ransoming hostages. The battles of the spring of 1676 would mark the high tide of the native insurgency in New England and the turning of that tide. On March 26, 1676, the tide was running all in favor of the native insurgents. A war party fell upon a group of settlers riding into Springfield for church services. The Indians killed several and took a couple of women and their children prisoner. Under pursuit, they killed the children and injured their mothers before making their escape. An attack on Marlboro left that town partially destroyed, and Narragansett warriors burned in an abandoned town in Connecticut. A few miles north of Providence, Rhode Island, a large force of Narragansetts under the athletic and charismatic Sachem Kenneshet rubbed out a strong contingent of militia under Captain Michael Pierce. Captain Pierce and a force of about 65 Plymouth men and 20 friend Indian auxiliaries had taken the field in search of Narragansetts, believed to be encamped on the Pawtucket River. They found a small party, and they killed several in a firefight. The next day, the same scenario presented itself, only this time, the small force of Indians was a decoy party that led Pierce into a well-crafted ambush by about 500 warriors, mostly Narragansetts, but also some Wampanoag and Nipmuc and others. This is a classic scenario of frontier partisan warfare and played out over and over again through, through the centuries, really, where a force would follow a decoy party into an ambush and, uh, and pay a very high price. Pierce drew his men up into a classic last-stand circle, and 42 of them, including Captain Pierce, went down right there in the field. Some escaped. Nine of those were captured and were horribly tortured to death. The Narragansetts later attacked and, and burned the town of Rohibeth, and most of Providence, Rhode Island, which had mostly been abandoned by this time, to the ground. Kenneshet was on a terror, but it proved to be a brief one. On April 3rd, a force of Connecticut militia under Captain George Dennison swept the Pawtucket in search of Kenneshet's raiders. The Connecticut force was predominantly made up of Mohegan, Pequot, and Niantic warriors, Niantics being a branch of the Narragansett who had remained uh, friendly with the English. Connecticut had never hesitated, like Massachusetts and Plymouth had, to deploy native forces, and those forces had been consistently effective. This time, they surprised Kanachet in his camp. I mentioned that Kanachet was very athletic, and he sprinted away, throwing off a silver-chased red coat and a belt of wampum as he fled. But when he tried to cross a creek, his foot slipped on a wet rock, and he went in the drink, which 
of course, rendered his musket completely useless, and that took the starch out of him. He surrendered to a Pequot pursuer without putting up a fight. Connecticut offered to spare his life if he would persuade his fellow insurgents to surrender, but Canachet scorned the offer, and he was told that he would be executed and said, I like it well. I shall die before my heart is soft, before I have spoken a word unworthy of myself. According to accounts, he flung his arms wide open to take a volley in the chest from a Pequot firing squad. A Mohican cut off his head, and a Niantic quartered his body. And all of this was, this was not native torture, this was, or, or mutilation rather, this was ritual punishment under English law for rebels and traitors. And Kenachet's head was put on a spike in Hartford, Connecticut. It's worth noting that Kenachet's mission in the area was, in addition to stacking Englishmen and burning their homes, retrieving uh, seed corn for planting, which he did manage to do. Again, the logistics of simply keeping the native insurgent forces fed was predominant. On April 21st, 500 insurgents under the joint leadership of Metacomet and the Nipmuc Sachem Matomp left their headquarters camp at Mount Wachusett in north central Massachusetts to hit the town of Sudbury. And this led to one of the most epic battles of King Philip's War, known as the Sudbury Fight. The attack began with warriors infiltrating the town and burning and looting abandoned homes. Citizens had retired to Sudbury's garrison houses, especially the Hayes Garrison, which lay at the foot of a hill. And this very stout, well-built garrison house withstood repeated assaults from Metacomet's Wampanoag, with Sudbury men firing in relays through the ports in the second floor, which was built with a layer of brick sandwiched between stout planking, which made it basically impervious to musket fire. The Wampanoag loaded a cart with combustibles and set it aflame and rolled it down the hill toward the fort, but it hit a rock and the cart broke apart. As the fighting around the Hayes garrison raged, a contingent of 11 brave but foolish militiamen responded to the scene from nearby Concord. The insurgent warriors ambushed them and killed all but one of them. Captain Samuel Wadsworth had just ridden through Sudbury with a contingent of militia detailed to garrison what was left of Marlborough, and when he heard of the attack on Sudbury, he turned his very weary soldiers around and marched them back up the road to the northeast, augmented by the men they were supposed to relieve in Marlborough. When Wadsworth's contingent got into sight of Sudbury, they saw a small group of Indians moving between Green Hill and Goodman's Hill. You know this story. Wadsworth gave chase. And he rode into a very well-prepared ambush. One historical commentator opines that the attack on the garrison houses may have been an elaborate ruse to draw in reinforcements for just such an ambush, a bit of tactical genius that was certainly within Matomp's capabilities. 
And it was certainly Matop and his Nipmuc that hammered Wadsworth's command in the ravine or defile between Green Hill and Goodman's Hill. Exhausted as they were, outnumbered and surprised as they were, Wadsworth's militiamen really acquitted themselves very well. They broke through the encirclement and gained the high ground on the summit of Green Hill, making the Nipmuc and their allies pay for any casualties that they took. With sundown coming, along with the prospect of more reinforcements, the insurgents decided to break off the action, but not without exacting a further toll. They set fire to the brushy hillside, and thick smoke and flame finally broke the militia's discipline. They fled in a rout, and a rout always leaves fleeing soldiers vulnerable, and many of them were cut down. Wadsworth was among the 29 men killed in the Green Hill firefight. Several men escaped and took refuge in a mill building, and they were later rescued, and a half dozen men were carried off and and later tortured to death. The Sudbury fight was another tactical victory for the native insurgency. But the Indians' reaction to it demonstrates that they well knew that it was a strategic failure. They had killed a lot of Englishmen, but they'd also taken heavy losses. And those were losses that they couldn't replace. They'd expended significant quantities of powder and lead without recovering any munitions or foodstuffs from the garrison houses, which had withstood their assaults. The captive Englishwoman, Mary Rowlandson, described the force's doleful return to Mount Wachusett. They said they had killed two captains and almost a hundred men. One Englishman they had brought along with them, and he said it was too true, for they had made sad work at Sudbury, as indeed it proved. Yet they came home without that rejoicing and triumphing over their victory, which they were wont to show at other times, but rather like dogs, as they say, which have lost their ears. Rowlandson would soon be ransomed, or, in the parlance of the Puritans, redeemed. The release of captives was a a point of contention and dissension amongst the native insurgents. Metacomet, who had grown bitter and was increasingly militant, opposed allowing the ransom of captives. The Nipmuc favored the move. And now we come to a circumstance where the imperatives of of logistics are really driving the action of the war. The need to gather enough food to make it through the summer campaigning season before crops could be harvested led the native insurgents to establish a cluster of camps at the falls on the Connecticut River northeast of Deerfield. The place called Peskyomskut was a long-established fishing camp with quite a bit of acreage cleared away for planting and, uh, and the siting of brush shelters called wetus. In May of 1676, warriors and families of Nipmuc, Narragansett, Wampanoag, and Pockmatuck warriors gathered to work the fishing runs. 
women actually planted in settlers' fields that had been abandoned down toward Deerfield, and the men raided for cattle. In one instance at the beginning of May, stealing 700 cows from Hatfield. A Captain William Turner resolved to put an end to these incursions. He was informed by an Englishman who had escaped captivity that the Peskyomska village was a soft target, mostly women and children and old men, which suited Turner because the only force he could raise was an inexperienced crew of mostly young men. They moved out on horseback from Hatfield on May 18th. Reaching a spot near the falls in the wee hours of the morning, Turner's men dismounted and crept forward toward the camp. Historian Douglas Leach describes the scene. Reaching a suitable place about a half mile from the falls, Turner gave the word to dismount. The company tethered their horses to young trees and, leaving a few men behind as guards, moved ahead on foot. Like silent wraiths, they stole along the northern side of the great river, thankful that the crackling of branches underfoot and the occasional clank of weapons were swallowed up in the roar of the water as it hurled itself over the rocky drop. Dawn was rapidly approaching as they waded across the shallow Fall River and moved in among the silent wigwams of the first Indian camp. Miraculously, there were no sentries to challenge them. The Indians, having feasted the previous evening on roast beef and milk from the stolen English cattle, and knowing that no field army was in the upper valley to disturb them, were all asleep. Scattering through the camp, the attackers aimed their musket directly into the wigwams and opened fire upon the huddled figures inside. Instantly, with the first crashing shots, there began a scene of wildest confusion. Wounded Indians writhed and screamed in the wigwams while others leaped to their feet and dashed for the river bank, There were startled cries of, Mohawks! Mohawks! Until the savages saw their assailants and knew that it was the English who were upon them. The cry of Mohawks demonstrates just how traumatized Metacomet's people were by last winter's attack on their camp. In this case, the English showed that they could be just as deadly and brutal as any Iroquois. They shot down fleeing women and children and forced many into the river where they were either gunned down in the water or swept over the falls. Leach report, Like ferrets, the English scoured through the camp and along the riverbank, flushing terror-stricken Indians out of their hiding places and dispatching them with sword or gun. Women and children were considered fair prey along with the men, and there was no thought of quarter. Some of the soldiers found two forges which the Indians had set up for repairing of guns. These the English destroyed, along with quantities of ammunition and provisions. Among the plunder thrown into the river were two great pigs of lead. As I've noted in a previous episode, uh, Douglas Leach, who wrote Flintlock and Tomahawk, New England and King Philip's War, um, which is still one of the absolutely critical texts about the war. Leach was writing in 1958, and, uh, and some of his language is uh, typical of, of that time and uses terminology that, that we wouldn't use anymore, um, particularly sometimes referring to the Indians as savages, which is pretty ironic because his own 
depiction demonstrates that the, the English were quite savage in their attack. It's important to note, though, that as gruesome as the slaughter was, from a strategic standpoint, the loss of completely irreplaceable ammunition and foodstuffs was an even worse blow to the native insurgency. But the warriors would exact a price for the blood and treasure that they lost at Peskyomskwet. Warriors from nearby camps rallied, and as Turner tried to organize his men for a withdrawal, the Indians fell upon them, and the withdrawal turned into a panicked rout. And as previously noted, when a force is routed, that's when the killing really begins in earnest. The enraged Indians harried the English through Deerfield before breaking off. At least 40 of Turner's men, 25% of his force, fell on the retreat, including Turner himself, who was shot through the legs and back and left to die. Despite the horrors of the rout, the massacre and battle at what would be known afterward as Turner's Falls marked a turning point for the native insurgency. And by turning point, I mean that the insurgency was falling apart. Leach describes the situation as spring bled into summer. And you'll note that Leach's general tendency to take the point of view of the uh, colonial settlers is reflected in his reference to the Indians as the enemy. To the keen observer, the basic weaknesses of the enemy were now becoming apparent. Sharp divisions were coming to the fore, even among those Indians who were supposedly united in their opposition to the English. Earlier in the spring, there seems to have been a dispute over basic strategy, the older and more prudent Indians favoring a program of numerous scattered raids on English dwellings and the avoidance of battle with strong colonial forces, while the younger and more ardent warriors insisted on a program which included pitched battles with the English. Certainly, the second policy was in effect at Sudbury. Later, dissension arose over the question of negotiating with the English. It is obvious that the willingness of the Indians to negotiate concerning prisoners and peace stemmed from a growing realization on the part of many of them that total victory was impossible. The most ardent foes of the English, including Philip himself, were opposed to the negotiations, but were overruled by the growing faction of moderates. In fact, with disillusionment about Philip's cause came growing opposition to Philip himself and a tendency on the part of some Indians to blame him for all their troubles. Under this darkening cloud, Metacomet moved south into his old homeland. Perhaps he feared being turned over to the English as the alliance began to split. Perhaps he simply wanted to make his last stand on home ground. As he moved back toward Mount Hope, Metacomet, the rebel who had sparked bloody war that had devastated New England, had three months to live. In the next episode, we'll turn the spotlight fully on Benjamin Church, who sat out the last few months healing from the wounds he took in the Great Swamp Fight. As Metacomet moved south, 
church was ready to hit the trail in pursuit, which brought on the end game of King Philip's war. I'd like to thank our growing list of patrons who uh, support the podcast and FrontierPartisans.com and uh, help us keep this electronic campfire burning. That's Bridger Larson, Deuce Richardson, Robert Buckholtz, Ash, Harry Kaiser, Mike McIver, Wade McKnight, Chaz Clifton, Bob Dice, Alan Godseff, Jerry Nunnally, El Randolito, Christopher West, Matthew Free Live Free, Paul McNamee, David Rolson, and Rick Schwartfeger. Um, if you're listening and are not yet a patron and would like to throw down a few clues to help uh, support the podcast, the uh, link to the Patreon page is in the show notes. Um, I'll also uh, make a note of Leech's book, Flintlock and Tomahawk. Um, you know, some folks uh, look askance at, at Leech now because of his, uh, his bias toward the the Puritan side of the story and some of the language that he uses, but it really is a foundational text um, and still the best and most complete single volume account of the military history of the war. There's been a lot of, uh, of other scholarship in the years since 1958, obviously, and there's a, a, a number of very good books, which I'll wrap up at the end of the uh of this podcast series, but, uh, yeah, if you're going to pick up one volume, um, with an emphasis on the military history of King Philip's war, Leach is, is still pretty much a, a go-to, um, a go-to historian. And, uh, we shouldn't throw, throw him out just because some of, uh, his outlook is what we would consider now to be a little archaic. Um, Looking forward to the next episode, which uh, sort of reflects the the genesis of the whole King Philip's War podcast, which is uh, um, Benjamin Church. I, I, I got intrigued by Benjamin Church and his reputation as America's first ranger. Um, he wrote a very vivid account of King Philip's War and hit, uh, really... Benjamin Church's adventures in King Philip's War, um, which is, as we'll uh, explore in the coming episode, very distinct from the general run of Puritan accounts of the war, which uh, engage on engage with it as sort of a, on a theological level as as God's punishment for sin. Uh, Church was not much interested in theology. He was telling, uh, as he put it, entertaining sketches from a a war um, that he undertook with a great deal of relish. Um, Church's reputation has suffered in in recent years, as you have probably already guessed, and uh, in which the next episode will surely confirm I think pretty well of, of Benjamin Church. Yeah, yeah, he, he was a little bit larger than life, a little full of himself, but I think that he was truly the real deal and that he deserves his status as America's first ranger. 
and uh, certainly he is a very entertaining frontier partisan character. And uh, so the next episode, I think, will be, uh, certainly hope it will be an entertaining one. And then uh, after that, we will do a little bit of a wrap-up on King Philip's War and, uh, and call it a series. Uh, I have very much enjoyed exploring this episode, a very important episode in American history and American frontier history in particular. And uh, look forward to wrapping it up with you. So we'll see you down the trail. <laughs>